Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 16 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky from Choose Boston, Ray Herto, HRV Homes, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And we're here today with our guest, Michael Olson with Rhino Capital Advisors. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. Really excited to have you with us. This is a podcast I've been looking forward to for a while. I've been trying to track down Mike. Let me get him to join us. He's someone who I rely on very often, who has a real diverse knowledge of the real estate market and plays in a lot of different sectors. Um, and we're excited to talk to you today. Thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me, guys. So let's jump into it. We were chatting offline before we got going about generally the office. You do a lot of office and uh, your thoughts on the market. I know it's a very dynamic market, which can vary uh, location to location. And uh, so what are your thoughts? Well, first and foremost, continue to feel that Boston is an unbelievable place to be from the standpoint of being an investor in property and also from the standpoint of being a tenant. You know, there are other markets across the country that are extremely envious of Boston at this stage. One of the recent trends, obviously, that we've been seeing is the emergence of groups like WeWork and how that's changing how people are viewing office space, whether it's suburban or downtown office space. And we talked before about the seaport just emerging and just being an absolute home run and people wanting to be there and wanting to be in that sense of, of place. Except the traffic. <laughs> and it's infrastructure right. is a totally different story, probably for another podcast. But we got into that a little bit, little bit of the previous podcast. Yeah, so. yeah. You said you were jealous or envious of not jumping in five, ten years ago when it was in all a parking seaport? lots. And so seaport. when I started at Jones Lang LaSalle, which was JLL now in 2006, that entire area was parking lots, and a lot of my colleagues parked over there. And we used to look out from the 26th floor of one post office square and hear people talk about what was going to be someday. And it was just so challenging to see that happen. Boston and its neighborhoods, I felt, always had this unbelievable juxtaposition between history and modern life. You know, one of my first jobs was working at One Beacon Street, and I walked down the Freedom Trail coming off the tee into a 40-story tower. I thought that was unbelievable on the way I passed Sam Adams' grave. Where else can you possibly yeah. get that level of history with modern life? Seaport was going to be a whole new animal for the city of Boston from the standpoint where it was just a brand new city, brand new buildings, no character, all new. And it was just very challenging for us to see that. And it was also challenging to see office tenants move from the epicenter of what we thought was the financial center, which was the post office square area and other areas around there, and then call Seaport home, not to mention the infrastructure and what they were going to do in that regard. And then the buildings started coming up. People started rushing over there to be in the new hot market. And literally over the period of seven years, it has become an unbelievable place where people are flocking to and the prices that they're achieving, whether you want to live there or whether you want to lease space there to call it home for your company, uh, is shocking. And I think really showcases getting back to how dynamic Boston is. It showcases that. We built an entire new city in seven years and filled it up quickly. Uh, it makes incredible. you feel old, doesn't it? When you see the seaport and you're yeah. with a friend, you're like, I remember when. Yeah, we used to, Ray and I used to work down there at the World Trade Center when we when we first started, and it was it was just parking lots. It was a dumpy Chinese restaurant and a dumpy sports bar, and that was all that was there. The old Bank of America Pavilion, which I think they're calling the Blue Hills Pavilion now, and it might have been oh, I didn't names. know they changed the name. They did, yeah. New you sponsorship. Used, you used to go down there and you didn't even have to ask where you're going to meet up because to your point, there was only one or two spots that you yeah. could go to. So you'd show up at one of those, those two places. Now, imagine the places that you can go. I mean, there's literally 35 places. Not to mention like that all the development, like what they've done with the design center and trying to connect that whole dry dock area all the way into the seaport. I mean, it's, it's, in, it's absolutely incredible. And there's still a ton more that's going on down there. We've you're talked about this. Right. It, it's kind of their master plan and... It was because all the, the uh, cruise ships would come into Boston and your first experience, welcome to Boston, walk through just this dilapidated, like run down, half industrial, half, uh, I don't know, coastal nothing. It's just <laughs> nothing there. Hey, uh, urban planning of the seaport aside, <laughs> I think the three of us are something of experts with regards to residential. We can see an opportunity, size it up and see where we can add value. Um, so Mike, I guess this goes to you. How, when you're looking at office space, how, when do you feel real confident in diving in and that you can, you know, create something of value for your investors and your company? Yeah, what's kind of your underwriting criteria? The mantra that I've always said is we want to match the 
business needs of whatever company we're working with with the real estate situation. I think Seaport has been able to do that by creating this sense of place, and that's why people want to be there. Young people want to work there. We are obviously operating on a much lower level of not creating urban planning areas like that. We're building to building. But the first question we ask ourselves are, what is this company that we're working with that could potentially occupy this space? What do they need, and how do we adjust this building to match those business needs? Once we get through those questions, then we can start to think a little bit more granular about, well, how do we match this building to the marketplace itself? Does this building need additional amenities? Does this building need a new facade? Does this building need to just completely change the way that it looks and feels uh, and fits into the marketplace as a whole? It's amazing to me still that some companies let the tail wag the dog in terms of what's the real estate situation? Okay, I'll adjust my business needs to shoehorn myself into this piece of space. It really needs to be, what are your underlying business needs? And therefore, how do we adjust the real estate to make that happen? What are some actual examples from your experience? We talked a little bit about it earlier. It's hard wall offices versus open collaborative work environment. And the new trend, I believe, from what we're seeing is open collaborative environment. So strip everything out, let's do that. But then you actually start to ask them, well, what are you going to be doing in the space? And you find out, well, we're going to be doing a lot of critical thinking and really need to be in a closed door environment and be able to sit and do these things. (laughs) Well, how is the open floor plan conducive to what you're actually doing? And then you get the head scratcher of saying, okay, well, yeah, we probably do need a couple of meeting rooms where we can close the door. And then it's somewhere in the middle where you do have some open collaborative work environments, but you also have some conference rooms, telephone rooms, things like that. Um, On the industrial side, which we do too, that's much more fitting in terms of the actual systems in the building, how the building's working, et cetera, et cetera. But back to office, it's really questions like that. What do your employees need? Are your employees driving to work? Are they not driving to work? Are your employees here off hours? You know, do they need cafeteria needs? Do you have a young environment that likes to work out in the gym? Should we build you some gym space? It's all those things. Let's talk about Rhino Capital sure. and and how you got started and what you guys do. What's your bread and butter and go from there? So how we got started, uh, I always knew I wanted to get into real estate. I was born and raised in the Bay Area of California, going all the way back here. I'm sure you were expecting a succinct answer. And one of my very good friends, and I was in junior high school and you don't know what each other's fathers do, but uh, I knew his father was successful because they had a 40, 40 car garage. And just that to me was unbelievable. So he calls me one day and says, Mike, I, I have an extra ticket to the 49ers game. You should come with. And I go, okay, let's go. And driving down the highway, and by the way, he picked me up at a Bentley, but driving down the highway is pointing a building saying, I own that. I built that. I was 13 years old. And from that moment forward, I knew I wanted to do real estate. Fast forward, I went to Bentley College in Waltham and it was an accounting school. Coming out, there really wasn't that first year real estate job that everyone was really striving for. You really had to make your own way. I was very fortunate to get a job at One Beacon Insurance in the real estate department, which consisted of myself and the head of real estate. I had an unbelievable opportunity to learn what I would call commercial real estate 101. And my boss was extremely gracious with me of sitting down and giving me the five-minute tutorial. We've all had our own roads into real estate, but our industry throws around a lot of acronyms that you don't typically pick up and in a book that you can go buy. It's really experiential. And that's he, what this podcast is for. Exactly. So we're changing the dynamic right here, right now, which is terrific. Bingo. But after 18 months and moving 1,300 employees at One Beacon Insurance into a 260,000 square foot building in Canton, I segued over to JLL, uh, various roles, uh, one of them being an office leasing broker. I really wanted to get on the principal side of the business. So with family and friends' money, buying apartment buildings in Beacon Hill, From there, I really felt like I needed a little bit more experience working with a nimble entrepreneurial developer. So I went to work with the Grossman companies in Quincy, who are wonderful guys, Jake and Dave Grossman, and still talk to those guys probably once a week to this day. Uh, Phenomenal people. And from there, Rhino Capital was established in 2013. Our first opportunity was a four-building office portfolio. And the reason I bring that up is I really feel like this case study uh, indicates the types of opportunities that Rhino tries to chase. We like to find opportunities that aren't necessarily marketed. And my definition of marketed is an investment sales broker, one of the big shops downtown, is out there in the marketplace blasting it to a thousand potential buyers. We are manufacturing opportunities by calling owners directly and saying, 
we know a couple of these tenants. We think that there's some things that we might be able to do a little bit better. Not that you're not doing a good job, but we might be able to squeeze a little bit more out of this thing. Would you have any interest in selling? A lot of our opportunities come from that dynamic. In addition to that, we work with leasing brokers on the commercial side from some of the big firms and put together those opportunities as well. They might have a company that they're working with that has a specific need that the marketplace just can't fit to. Buildings are outdated or something's going on where they either need a building built or they need significant work done to a building and a landlord that owns that building isn't willing or is unable to perform that work for them. So we step in and we provide that service on their behalf. You'd say, well, why don't these companies just do that on their own and buy their own real estate? Well, they want to preserve their capital to operate their business. That's their bread and butter. Our bread and butter is owning these buildings and retrofitting these buildings to fit their business needs. And also there's a lot of hassles with owning real estate. We've all experienced it. (laughs) And a lot of companies don't want to deal with that. And they also want the flexibility too, even though they're leasing it for 10, 15 years. To them, that might not necessarily seem like a long time where they can leave and then not have to deal with selling that piece of real estate to somebody else because they don't want to be in the real estate business. They want to do whatever they're doing. You pretty much define almost you know, two types, two avenues that you go after. You go after existing, you work with other leasing brokers to, you know, to work with companies that are looking for a specific need, but you're also going out and looking for opportunities for your own, you know, business. So what would you say is a 50-50 split that you're doing that type of, those types of deals or one's more prevalent than the other? I think in every situation, a commercial leasing broker is heavily involved. We've got a very dynamic leasing brokerage community that does a phenomenal job representing these companies to match their business needs with the real estate situation. Uh, And we just only have a certain amount of hours in the day. They're out doing that day in and day out, knocking on doors, making phone calls, servicing their clients. And so we're able to tap into that by knowing them. We trust them. Hopefully they trust us as well. And we now have a track record where we've been able to help their clients meet their business needs by filling that void of being their landlord and building out that space or that building, however they might need to do it. Because that's, I mean, that's an incredible business model, right? Because you're going out and identifying a building that someone needs and are you locking them up in a lease before you purchase the building? Because that's, that. I mean, to as a landlord, that's an that's amazing. We are very blessed in that, yes, we are able to do that. So very recently we bought some buildings north of Boston Uh, And in both situations, one situation, it was a vacant building and we had a tenant sign a 11 and a half year lease before we closed on that property. And in the other situation, we bought a building where there was a little bit of lease term left, but we went in, talked to the the tenant, realized that they weren't extending their lease because some work needed to be done in the building. We offered to do that work and we were able to get a 10 year lease commitment from them as well. Is that common getting 10 years? Is it five? Or is it one month? (laughs) <laughs> month to month. Yeah, tenant at will. Uh, we work. So yeah, getting back to WeWork, I mean, that changes the dynamic. But in, for the buildings that we're looking at and the size that we're looking at, it's businesses are investing a fair amount of energy and money into the space itself. So they're not going to want to lease it for a month. They're going to know that they're going to be able to control that real estate to run their business for an extended period of time. So 10 years, I'd say, is common. Five years is probably more prevalent for what I would call commodity office space in the suburbs. And then in the downtown market, which admittedly we don't play with, we play in, I should say, we've only owned one downtown building and it was only 10,000 square feet. But what is happening, you mentioned WeWork and some of these other groups, they're coming in and gobbling up this space and offering one month lease terms. So as a landlord, you can't compete with that because you're having to fit this space out. You're spending money on leasing commissions. You're going to need to amortize those over a longer term than just one month. So the bifurcation that at least I've seen in the office market downtown is that more traditional landlords that own these buildings that aren't WeWork are going for bigger tenants that are going to be spending more money and more time and energy in those spaces, therefore are willing to sign longer-term leases. Whereas smaller tenants like myself, Rhino Capital, and we're only four people, we don't need that much space. It's much easier for us to go to a WeWork and say, well, we might grow next year or we might shrink. We're not going to shrink. We're going to grow. But (laughs) we want that flexibility. And WeWork has absorbed all the hassle of building out a a space. And by the way, we do not occupy space in WeWork. We think they're great and it's wonderful, but it's a very interesting dynamic that's happening, which we are focused on 
uh, and mindful of because it is changing how companies are thinking about how they occupy space. During my time at JLL, I actually started in the research group and we tracked vacancy and net absorption. And the definition of net absorption is if somebody comes in and they lease 100,000 square feet of vacant space, well, you had 100,000 square feet of net absorption. Well, if we work or another co-op office space comes in and leases that space, was that really net absorption? Because now WeWork has to go turn around and they have to lease up that 100,000 square feet to a thousand little tenants that are going to end up leasing a thousand square feet. So these research groups of, at these big firms like a JLL or a CBRE, they're starting to track that now because it, it is a, a real number that should be out there because it is competing for tenants coming in and, and occupying that space. Do you think there is an oversaturation of co-working space in the market or, or are we heading in that direction? It's a great question that I wish I had a better answer to. I would say that there are a lot of folks jumping into it at different levels. There are some groups that are saying, I'm only going to have 10,000 square feet and I'm going to provide this level of service. There's the WeWorks that are obviously have a lot of capital behind them that are really buying into it and saying, we're going to do this and, and, and make it work. And a lot of people are, are chasing them. And then there are some landlords that are saying, I'm not going to accept this. I'm going to start to do that too. And they're going to They've built out their own spaces. Cummings Properties is a group that comes to mind that they've built out their own co-working opportunities so they don't need to feel like they are, comp- are not competing with those folks and can't compete with those folks. Yeah, they we've are seen some smaller landlords doing that type of co-working space in areas of the city outside of the downtown core to t- try to attract people into various neighborhoods. You know, I know that there's a landlord in Dorchester that's doing it in a much smaller, you know, I think he has two floors in a, you know, brick building that he's leasing out, you know, so it's, it's an interesting model. And I just, I'd be curious to see how successful it is long-term. I think it, it always comes back to the fundamental of, are you meeting the business needs of your clients? And we work and other groups like it have clearly tapped into meeting the business needs of their clients, clients that can't commit to longer term leases. Again, it was very challenging for landlords before to do any semblance of a month to month opportunity, unless you were completely sacrificing having that sense of place, having any types of amenities whatsoever. So we were definitely filled a void in the marketplace. I think your question is a good one is how long do we have to go and what groups are going to stick around long term? And what's that threshold of, okay, we have enough of this. Now there's a new equilibrium that's been established. Let's all move forward. Boston, I think, is an interesting place where this is happening because we are such a diverse tenant market. We are having so many people move in where I believe we were could go gobble up another couple hundred thousand square feet and there would be people right there willing to come in and lease that out. And that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> of It seems like WeWork is a lot of startup based because if you think about it, startups, a lot of uncertainty. They could be growing fast. They just need somewhere to, to put bodies, you know, not to downplay the importance of a startup because they are the ones that are really innovating to, until they get big enough, they get their own space, kind of know what size they'll be, hopefully get bought out and get a good offer and the money just keeps going around and around. My question, because you, you hit on a lot of topics here and so I just kind of want to backtrack a little bit. Tenant improvements. Now, selfishly, this question is also for, for me and Dan. We bought a commercial building north of the city and we are currently going through the process of um, updating some of the common spaces. And we have been also in touch with our broker who's been bringing uh, potential tenants through. What can one expect, i.e. us or others in this field, in terms of tenant build-out costs? Is that how negotiable are those? What do you typically see and what's it look like? So it starts with two things. And I know I keep saying this and forgive me for being redundant, but it's matching the business needs of your clients. So understanding who that tenant coming through, what are their real needs? And once you're there, it's how much rent are they willing to pay? Therefore, how much tenant improvements are you supposed to be providing? So if they're willing to sign a five-year lease or a 10-year lease, there's a big difference if you can amortize those tenant improvements over five years versus 10 years. Let's say it works out to be $50 a foot. Well, if they sign it for a five-year deal, you have to amortize $10 per square foot each year of that five-year term. But if it was 10 years, now it drops down to $5. That's something that's kind of been on my mind, right? You know, is that industry standard to 
basically roll in the tenant improvement costs into the lease and amortize it over the lease? And what happens if for some reason that tenant stops performing, stops paying, moves out? Am I screwed as the the landlord and the owner of the building that I now have to eat these TIs that I paid for and really may not get any benefit for with the next tenant? Do you want the blunt answer or the diplomatic yeah, me, answer? Get, <laughs> no, <laughs> give us the real deal here, you know? It comes back to what we're all doing. And we're all risk managers that have decided to focus on the real estate industry. It's a question you have to ask yourself when every tenant comes through your building is, how sure am I that I am going to get these funds back? Because yes, as landlord, you are putting that capital into the space day one, and you are relying on the tenant to pay you back in the form of rent payments over the term of their lease. Now, depending on the quality of the space of them going in, of course, there's intrinsic value to updating that space, and it's going to be more desirable to somebody else. And it factors in the questions of, well, how specialized am I making this space for this business based on their needs? Am I keeping it commodity and basic enough where somebody else could come occupy it behind them? And therefore, am I okay extending myself a little further? Or is this totally specialized that nobody else could use it? And every dollar I'm sinking into this, to your point, I will be screwed unless these guys pay me rent over the term of their lease. So I feel like I'm made whole on the back end. Right. So a good example would be open space office, you know, kind of fairly flexible use versus something very specialized in the like medical field or something, right? I feel like if a tenant came in, put their own money, had some skin in the game, they'd be less likely, you'd take them more seriously. They'd be less likely to, likely to, to close down and all this other Maybe, maybe reduce not. the risk. Maybe not. They may not. They may not. Here's but. a question. What do you do in a residential application if someone stops paying rent? Notice to quit. <laughs> you can't change the locks. The courts are generally fairly lenient on residential tenants. Is it the same in commercial or is it a little bit more cut and dry? This is coming from somebody who thankfully has not been in that position. All our tenants have always paid. We've always had wonderful experience. And I'm not just saying that. We've been very fortunate in that regard. And it gets back to doing your diligence up front of, who you're leasing space to. The assumption is, I believe, in the courts is when you're leasing commercial space, you are dealing with more sophisticated folks. Although Massachusetts still is very tenant-friendly, on the commercial side, the laws are a little bit different where you do have, I think, more ability to recapture some of those costs, evict them, and therefore able to lease it out to somebody else that will pay rent. That being said, you don't want to go into a situation thinking that that's even a remote possibility. You want to feel pretty good that whatever tenants coming into the space is going to pay you that rent over the duration of their lease term. Unfortunately, with tenant improvements, you know, a lot of underwriting and a lot of investors go in and they want to say, all right, well, what's market tenant improvements? And I think that there's typically an answer that a broker can provide, but it's just, it varies so much. If it's space that only needs paint and carpet, well, then you can apply $10 a square foot, let's say. But if you do have a tenant coming in, let's say like a life science tenant or somebody like that, they are going to need upwards of $100 to $150 a square foot to build out that space. And then you as landlord say, well, here's how much I'm willing to contribute towards that. I need you to have skin in the game. So you're going to come up with whatever the difference is between what I'm willing to put in and what you need to make this space work for you to operate your business. And there's no cut and dry, black and white, this is how it's supposed to be. It's a negotiation. Like with that, and that's why brokers are involved because brokers help mediate that negotiation and get to you get to a point where things could happen. And then it depends on what landlords are more capable of taking on the risk of a certain tenant. You know, if you own one building and can't amortize or I should say allocate that risk over a larger portfolio, it's more challenging. If you're a big fund that has a hundred different buildings with a thousand different tenants, you're probably going to be willing to take more of a risk on a tenant that might be a little shaky in terms of their ability to pay you back. Nice. Appreciate it. Hey guys, we were talking about uh, business needs earlier. Did you see a study recently about temperature control in the office? It's always, you know, you always think that women like a environment, which is maybe a little warmer, but they had a bunch of students and they actually studied and they found that one degree temperature change resulted in a 2% increase in test scores on verbal and math for women. So another one is just, zoning your offices and maybe having thermostatic controls. We have a funny story in relation to that. In my first job, we were dealing with somebody, and we're all familiar with white noise. In a yes. lot of big open office environments, you have white noise coming down to help shield the noise of somebody on the phone 10 or 15 feet away from you. And this individual was complaining 
The thermostat always gets changed and then air starts blowing down. I mean, I always get very cold and we had to let her know, no, that's a white noise machine that is not blowing cold air down on you. (laughs) The old adage from working in facilities is a third of the people are comfortable, a third of the people are cold, a third of the people are hot. So we are focused on HVAC and updating those systems and having more controls of how your environment is dictated. But to answer your question succinctly, I have not read that study, but it does not surprise me at all. I'll send that around. It's it's now science. Official. Speak, speaking oh, of speaking HVAC, of HVAC. There it goes our there, buildings. There it goes. <laughs> so can we talk for the um for our listeners here? Can we get a little high level with just kind of lease terms? There's uh, single net, double net, triple net. There's probably all kinds of modifications. What's the most prevalent? And tell us a little bit about each of, about each of those. Sure. So for office, the most prevalent is a gross lease. And the succinct definition of a gross lease is that landlord is paying for all the operating expenses and real estate taxes associated with the building and the space itself. The other end of the spectrum, which is most prevalent, is what we affectionately call a triple net lease, which succinctly defined as the tenant is paying for all the operating expenses and the real estate taxes associated with the building. Again, for office, gross is much more prevalent because most offices are multi-tenant buildings. So how could you possibly decide how much the nets are for one tenant versus another tenant? Whereas a lot of industrial buildings are triple net because a lot of industrial buildings are single tenant buildings. Therefore, the tenant is able to handle all that. And you know that 100% of those expenses are allocated to that specific tenant. To your point, there are variations on both, everything in between on the end of the spectrum. Uh, It depends on how the lease is defined. It depends on the building. It also depends on the market. Do you see different kinds of leases outside of the city versus in the city? Or is it really specific, like you said, about office, you know, the type of commercial space? Yeah, I would say that it's much more product-driven and the type of the building versus what marketplace you're in. One interesting data point is if you're in California and you get a rental rate stated to you, they're stating it on a monthly basis. Whereas if you're in Boston and you say it's $20 a square foot, you say, okay, that's for the year. (laughs) So my friends who still live in the Bay Area, California, they said, you know, you can rent space in Palo Alto for like 15 bucks a foot. And I said, there's no way that that's possible. It's way too expensive. And we figured out, oh, you're quoting it per month, $15 a square foot. Whereas <laughs> our suburban office space, I would say is somewhere closer to $30 a square foot. Let's go talk about the differences between the, you know, Metro Boston versus the suburban markets. And where do you see, you know, we talked about how hot the, the Boston market is. You know, let's talk a little about the suburban market. When you get outside of the city, you know, outside of the you know, maybe still within the 495, 128 belt, but, you know, you're getting out there maybe a half hour outside the city. Where do you see the market there and how do you see it compared to the downtown Boston market? Waltham is the capital of the suburbs from an office space standpoint. As far as I'm concerned, 128 is definitely our inner belt and everything is drafting off of Waltham moving in either direction off of 128. You know, being in Quincy Braintree is equivalent to being in Peabody and Beverly, whereas if you're in Woburn or Dedham, you're a little bit closer to that epicenter of Waltham. And the pricing basically works in conjunction with that moving along the 128 corridor. I couldn't give you exact metrics, but just interesting. In theory, that's how it works going off of that direction. 495, candidly, I'm not that much of an expert, but the office market around 495 really is not that prevalent. There's not a lot of office space there. That's much more industrial flex. The office is more confined into the 128 area. Can you talk about a little bit of that industrial flex space? You said that you have a project that you recently started on, and that's another sector that you guys play in. Yes. I sometimes think the grass is always greener, and I'm always interested in going into industrial or warehouse, but I I don't know the first Storage units. So yeah, exactly. (laughs) Self-storage was definitely a hot product type for a long time. Uh, But to answer your question in terms of uh, industrial flex space, with the emergence of same-day delivery, uh, it has completely transformed that marketplace. And there is just how people view industrial space, I think, is completely different. In addition, you have Boston, which is a totally dynamic place. We have all these amazing companies doing all these amazing things. You know, they don't all need office space. Sometimes they need to manufacture things. Sometimes they need to store things. So office space just is not going to work. They need more of an industrial building. Where we gravitated towards it was 
mostly that, that we felt like there were companies that really needed specialized space that the market didn't have at the time and didn't have available at the time. Somebody else either occupied that space or it hadn't been built yet. So we found a niche where we could say, all right, we can create that space for them. In addition to that, they typically invest a lot more money in their infrastructure, whether it's machinery, whether it's storing materials, whatever that might be. And therefore, they're willing to sign longer lease terms. Our investors are primarily a syndication of high net worth individuals. And the metric that they really like to focus on is cash on cash returns. If you have an office building that has two tenants that have three-year lease terms, your pro forma is going to look three years of some stable, durable cash flow. And then I don't know after you're making some assumptions. The buildings that we're building and buying, we have 10, 12, 15 year leases associated with them where our pro forma has 10 plus years of stable, durable cash flow, which makes them feel a lot more comfortable and us a lot more comfortable that we've somewhat created what we affectionately call set it and forget it real estate, where we did the work up front, we matched the business needs of that tenant. They now have the building, they're operating their business. And we're following up with them to see if anything's changing, whether we need to expand the building, whether we need to change it for them. Um, But it's not this cycle of office leases, which are typically a shorter lease term and therefore much more management intensive uh, and a little bit harder to predict in terms of what that cash flow is going to be. So I have two more questions before I I have a third question. Uh, The first one. Ask girl, any (laughs) questions. I'm here to answer any and all. Just thinking about the 10-year lease, right? I assume you're building in some kind of automatic was it rent base rent increase as well as you follow whether it's a if it's gross then it's one number and it goes up a certain percentage if it's a triple net then it follows the actual taxes as their percentage interest or whatever it might be so that's pretty commonplace and that's what you you're doing that's definitely commonplace the buildings that we're building on the industrial side i've i have not seen and i'm sure they're out there i've not seen a gross lease for an industrial building in the greater boston marketplace again I'm sure they're out there. We've never come across one. So they're all triple net. And that's actually a little bit easier to underwrite as well because you say, well, whatever the expenses are, the tenant's going to pay for them. Therefore, me as owner, I don't need to be as focused on them. Obviously, you want to be mindful of what the real estate taxes are if the building's going to come back. And you want to know how the building's being operated because at the end of the day, you're going to take the keys back at some point. So you're going to want to make sure that it's being operated appropriately. But in terms of predicting those expenses, you're not as focused on it as you would be if it was an office Absolutely, building. right. And then base rent escalations, you're absolutely right. It's very rarely flat rent for the duration of the term. You're having some semblance of inflation-based escalations, whether you're arbitrarily saying it needs to be a 2% annual escalation or it's based on CPI or some type of factor like that. But it's rarely 10 bucks a foot flat for 10 years. You're having some semblance of escalations built in over that lease term. As far as the triple net lease situation now, are you, how does that work? So do you pay the taxes and then bill back the tenant or does the tenant get the tax bills? How how does that whole? My least favorite answer, it depends, but it really does. (laughs) It's how you structure the lease up front. And sometimes it gets back to the preference of the tenant. We deal with some tenants that have literally 150 locations all across the country in their own real estate departments. And they say, we want you to pay the real estate taxes and send us an invoice. That's how we do it. And all of our facilities, could you please make that work? And of course, we say that would be totally fine. We're happy to do that. Other groups say, we want to pay the real estate taxes directly. We're going to do that. Have the bills get sent to us. We'll pay them directly and send you a notice that they have been paid. We said, that's not a problem with us at all. Some landlords have specific preferences where they want to pay for the real estate taxes because they want to know that they're getting paid um, in a timely fashion and then bill back the tenant. It again, it's a terrible answer, but it's it's a true answer. It, it depends. Let's leave the lease terms aside for a second. Go back to how you raise the money for deals. You mentioned syndication a couple minutes ago. Have you guys looked at institutional capital and considered starting a fund? What, what are your feelings on that? We have, and we've talked to a lot of folks. And the reason what that drove us to us, we were active. We did have a good pipeline. And it's very time intensive for us to raise money from folks because we have a very intimate relationship with all of our investors. It's obviously based on trust and based on a track record, but we still talk to each one of our investors, make sure that we're answering all their questions and getting them comfortable on the deal. So in any deal, you can have anywhere from three to 10 different investors that you're working with. Going the institutional route, you could have one investor that then gives you ideally a larger check. But the trend that 
those folks are going and those folks being the institutional investors, they want to have a defined sandbox that you can play in. Uh, in layman's terms, they want to have a set investment that you're going to go after. Uh, as we've been talking about, we have the ability to go do a pretty diverse group of investments where on one hand, we're going to go buy an apartment building. One hand, we're going to go do a residential condo project. Then we've just talked about doing office as well as building industrial buildings. It's very challenging for a fund per se, or somebody willing to provide money into a fund to understand that you're going to be doing that diverse group of investments. They'd rather you pick one and say, this is what I specialize in. I'm going to try to be the best in the world at this, and this is what I'm going to go do. For personal preferences and based on the fact that our business is really heavily reliant upon our relationships with leasing brokers, and we want to be able to be flexible and nimble in helping them go with their ideas and helping them serve their clients. Again, for personal reasons, it was just very challenging for us to live within the limitations that we felt like the institutional capital route imposed upon us. Now, that obviously can change. And as you develop more of a track record and showcase that, I think more avenues do open up. But we've been very blessed to have a wonderful, diverse, stable of high net worth individuals who actually can be accretive of the deal too, because they have knowledge of certain situations and ideas that they're willing to share with us. And then we've never had too much trouble given the opportunities that we've had to be able to to raise that capital. Are you giving your investors a mostly debt, mostly equity, a combination of both? Or are you using a promote structure? And if so, can you define that? So our investments are, everybody is a partner for the most part. Even if we're structuring something as what we call preferred equity, which I think feels and acts and reads much more like debt, they still have an ownership interest in our projects. And, and this what, is from a legal standpoint operating agreement or Exactly. LP. We create LLCs to own our properties and those LLCs have operating agreements and the terms of our relationship are detailed in there. Um, we feel very strongly that we want to have an alignment of interests and we want everybody to feel like they have skin in the game, most notably us. I am personally invested in every single one of our investments right alongside our investors. But in terms of the promote structure, like you talk about, oftentimes we do structure that. And to define that very simply, it's if the project does better than expected, you are able to get a disproportionate share of that upside predicated on the fact that you were the one likely adding that value to the project itself. And then your investors have already made more than what they had anticipated and therefore want to incentivize you to create even more value and wealth and cash flow associated with those projects. Is that sometimes called a waterfall structure? Absolutely. Waterfall can be across the board, but waterfall, I think, is more so uh, aligned with if you are in a fund structure and, and different folks in that fund and, and how it all works. But yes, waterfall is a common term for doing that, that different people have different incentive structures within an investment. See, I'm not just a construction guy. <laughs> thanks. No, they is say- your, so is your primary lender okay with you having all uh, a potentially a number of members within your LLC? Yeah. Right. Do they need to underwrite those members as well if they hit certain thresholds of interest? To clarify, primary lender being the lender on that specific project. Correct. Taking a step back, we actually get our debt per project, and it typically comes from local banks. The other benefit from doing what we do in Boston is there is a very frothy local banking market here. Um, I have a friend in Denver, and there's really only two or three groups that he can go to. Whenever we have an opportunity, we hire one of the the big firms we love working with. Uh, HFF comes to mind that we do a lot with. They'll send a package out for that debt, and we'll typically get anywhere from 15 to 20 term sheets back, and they're going out to 50 to 60 different lenders. So the lending environment here in Boston is wonderful. To now answer your question, yes, all lenders, based on their standards, want to know who they're lending money to. And given how we structure our deals, that everyone is technically an owner, they want to know who those folks are. Oftentimes, they're much more focused on us as the operator, the day-to-day manager, and they're spending much more time underwriting us. And given that we've done a fair amount of deals at at this point, um, we have gone back to the same lenders, and therefore they have an added level of comfort because of our track record and our working relationship with them. And then in addition to that, we have a lot of the same investors that are coming into our deals. So oftentimes they're familiar with those folks as well. uh, And it's not that heavy of a lift to 
get them comfortable, therefore get approval, and therefore move forward. I mean, are we talking about the lender? Say it's your first foray with a specific lender, and they don't know anything about you. So they're obviously spotlights on you. But you have these other investors there. Are they asking for tax returns, personal financial statements, all that fun stuff that you have to go through? And how do your how do you talk the investors off the ledge? Or are they do they know this is kind of par for the course? So the investors do not have to provide personal financial statements, tax returns. You as the operator do. So yes, you we have to do that, but your investors do not. It's much more of a cursory review of who that individual is. Uh, as opposed to really digging deep like they do with us and understanding our entire situation. So basically making sure they're not like a white-collar criminal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I was laughing, but it's it's one of those true laughs. Like, I'm laughing because it's probably well, real. Well, admittedly, too, it's the Patriot Act. And they yeah. want to make sure that you're not a, a foreign entity. That's actually the first box that they need to check. And then from there, they go in and just want to— Gambling, make- all that nonsense. The majority of your deals have been on the commercial side, but more recently you're jumping into residential stuff? I'd actually, I'd flip-flop that. Historically, we were doing much more on the residential oh, okay. side in apartments, and we were dabbling a little bit in commercial, and that was more so because of my background at JLL and having those relationships. And I think that it's now the opposite, where we're doing much more commercial because of the dynamics of the apartment market specifically to still play in the residential space we have pivoted and done condo projects. Uh, We have two happening at the moment. Uh, Whereas in 2015, we bought seven apartment buildings. Just to give you orders of magnitude of kind of how that has shifted. And we were going to fix those up and hold those um, and felt like we were adding value. And right now we only own two apartment buildings in in total. Now, where are the condo we were doing one condo project in Somerville, and the other is in the North End, where we had bought in the majority of our apartment buildings. The neighborhoods that we like to focus in are urban. As an example, when we were going into the Somerville market, we considered that totally out of our realm of competence and comfort. Uh, since now, I've obviously grown to, to love Somerville and think it's a great market and, and looks and acts much more like an urban market than we initially thought uh, in terms of where we were operating. And historically, we've operated in Beacon Hill. Charlestown, where we own a 47-unit building, or at least part of a 47-unit building, and then the North End, primarily. You guys ready for a quick game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? I saw you taking your notes. Let's do it. Michael, you know what that is? I'm excited to play. (laughs) Do you know the ground rules? No. We'll we'll throw out a term or a concept, and you tell us if you think that that is something which you're buying, in which case it's underrated, you're selling, it's overrated, or it's appropriately rated. Yeah. All right, so first one is uh, shopping malls. I would say, so if I thought that shopping malls, I didn't want to buy them, I'd say they're- Overrated. I would say they're overrated. You think they're the death of the shopping malls upon us? I do. I think there are some places in Boston that have done a phenomenal job, but they're not your traditional, what you would think, shopping mall. Uh, Legacy Place comes to mind. I think that place is amazing and how they've created that sense of place and how everything works together. That's a place you want to be. I think the shopping malls that we all went to our back-to-school shopping growing up as are definitely overrated. 1031 exchanges? What a great question. So we do a lot of 1031 exchanges. Uh, and obviously, for folks on the, the podcast that don't know, but I know you guys have talked a lot about it, it's, it's very tax efficient. But it, there's some paperwork and administrative things that, that go into it. I would say that it's overrated from the standpoint that I believe the tax implications force people sometimes to make investments to avoid those taxes. Doing a bad deal is a bad deal, regardless if you're doing a 1031 or you're not doing a 1031. So we always advise our investors if they do come to us and say that they have a 1031 in saying we are not going to force you and you shouldn't force yourself to make a bad investment. If we're able to find you a good investment and you just so happen to have 1031 proceeds, great. I'd say underrated. I would say it's overrated from the standpoint of, I do feel like people just think I'm not going to pay the taxes on it. So just put me in anything so I don't have to do that. And I don't think that that's the right mindset, but it sometimes just fundamentally gets there because there's time constraints to being able to deploy that capital into a new opportunity for the tax reasons. So from your perspective, maybe appropriately rated because- That's actually a good point. Do you follow follow the same method with 1031s that you do with your purchases where you have the tenant in place? So do you find the target property and say, oh, now I can sell this building, trade up? 
our underwriting standards for every investment opportunity are uniform across the board. Whether it's a 1031, whether it's a high net worth individual, whether it's an institutional capital, whether it's me, whether it's my mother. We are doing the exact same program that we would do with anybody. And we offer up those investments to, to our folks. And it's kind of it's first come, first serve. We do feel like certain risks uh, risk profiles associated with a building match somebody else better than another person. But from saying yes or saying no, then then we do that. But to get back to your question in terms of the 1031, you're right. For various reasons, I would say it's appropriate, <laughs> appropriately rated. What about casinos? Uh, so, the Encore just opened Me and this Jason weekend. Sankata had like a 30 DM exchange on this. I posted a picture of the Wynn Casino. And uh, this went back and forth. It was quite lively. Oh, really? For Instagram comment threads. (laughs) The Encore? Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. Just casinos in general. Well, yeah. But more, yeah, more specifically the Encore. I would say appropriately rated. I know that's a boring question. One of the the things that people talk a lot about with casinos that I do think is extremely overrated, and I know I'm giving more elaborate answers. I don't know if this is rapid fire. That's what you're supposed to do, no. All right, good. Uh, This isn't like deal or no deal. (laughs) Overrated. (laughs) The real estate around casinos, I think the conventional wisdom was, well, yeah, there's going to be so much economic growth here that everything around it is just going to intrinsically get better. I don't see that happening anywhere. I grew up for a little while in Glastonbury, Connecticut, and you go down to Mohegan Sun or Foxwoods, you were driving through a desolate area before you hit yeah. these you know, massive I'll, I'll take places. the opposite side of that bet. In fact, I believe that, re- that values of real estate will go down I agree. in the immediate vicinity of the casino. I agree with that completely. Yeah, but what about... I could see that in casinos in the middle of nowhere, but what about casinos in a? In, I mean, how many casinos do you know that are in a in a very like a huge urban market like Boston? It's incredible what's gone on over there, and no question, I can't wait to go. I haven't <laughs> had a chance to. I, I'm really excited to go. And do I think it's good that they did it here in Boston and where they did it? Yes, I think that's appropriately rated. I think it's terrific. I don't think it's going to be a blemish on our community. But I do agree with Mark that if somebody goes into it with the pitch and conventional wisdom of, well, yeah, everything around it's going to get better. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I couldn't quantify to you what that geographic area around it would be. But I do think if you're sitting right next to a casino, you're probably not feeling as good about it because casinos are built to keep you inside of them. Right. You don't need amenities around it. You're staying in there. That casino has everything you'd ever need, even if the apocalypse came. So... (laughs) I mean, look at Vegas, right? The second you go off the strip, it's not good. Trailer parks. Okay, cool. Next one. So what did I answer, by the way? I totally forgot. Appropriately. Appropriately? Yeah. I'm going to stick with that answer. All right, one more each. Project managers. I'd say underrated. Underrated big time. The, when you're doing a, any type of project, those decisions in culmination with them in its entirety add up to an extraordinary amount of time and money. And so, uh, absolutely underrated. You recently hired a project manager? I did. <laughs> I did. And, and I want to say, too, not just from the standpoint of to manage the projects, it really was through the prism of two things. One, managing the risks associated with the projects that we were doing. Even if we're doing something as straightforward as a tenant fit out, having somebody to oversee that process and making sure that we're making good little decisions along the way that ultimately lead to really good outcomes was vital for our investors to have that skill set in-house to do that versus having it third party. And my answer, whether it would be a third party project manager or an in-house project manager would be the same, but I think having somebody else, in addition to that too, um, just the values that, that that individual has are totally aligned with what we want at Rhino Capital, how I want to operate. And having that was a prerequisite of doing the right things, even if somebody's not looking over your shoulder. So thrilled uh, from a variety of standpoints, but just succinctly put, project managers, thumbs up, definitely underrated. All right, last one here for me. Opportunity zones. Getting back to the 1031 answer, a bad deal is a bad deal. There's a lot of capital out there right now because of tax implications or tax reasons. Say, okay, we're going to go and we're going to invest in these opportunity zones. Uh, People, I think, really need to take a step back and remember that a bad deal is a bad deal, whether the tax implications are better or worse, one or the other. Uh, I think the intentions of putting opportunity zones together definitely make a whole heck of a lot of sense, promoting more capital flowing into these areas, therefore promoting more development which is going to promote more economic growth. All those things are fantastic. Just looking at it through the prism of an investor going to invest in an opportunity zone, just think, remember, a bad deal is a bad deal and a good deal is a good deal. 
Yeah. So appropriately rated? No, no. I would say <laughs> under. I would say overrated. How about building amenities in general? So obviously, if you're fitting out a building specifically for a tenant, but I'm talking about if you're if you are building out a building just for leasing, how important are? Underrated is a succinct answer. Building amenities are crucial as far as I'm concerned. Just looking at it, you have two buildings that are the exact same, but one has a cafeteria and one doesn't, but they're the same price. Which building are you going to go to? You're going to go to the building with the cafeteria with more amenities. And spaces are constantly competing for people to be interested in them. So I would say they're very, very important. And I think WeWork overall has done a wonderful job of creating these amenities that people are drawn to. So you want to be a part of that space. So I, I think building amenities are definitely underrated and very, very important. I should have specified whether it was a, a commercial specific. or residential type amenity. Uh, <laughs> but well, I would say the answer is uniform across the board. I mean, okay. same thing. If you're going to rent an apartment in a building that doesn't have a certain amount of amenities versus another and they're the same price, you're going to go to the building that has more amenities. Or that other building has to decrease its price. Exactly. And I don't know how to quantify certain amenities. I think that remains a con- continual argument of what amenities do these buildings need, what have more value. Obviously, gets back to the personal preferences of the consumer or occupier of that space at the end of the day. But yeah, I, I think amenities, whether it's residential or commercial, are definitely underrated and very crucial. Awesome. Hey, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, this was Thanks really enlightening. Very, very educational. Folks Thank find you. their first commercial space or uh, flex industrial and they need to get a hold of you for uh, a quick check on their underwriting. How do they, how do, they do that? They would go to our website, rhinocapitalllc.com. They can email me directly at michael at rhinocapitalllc.com and would love to help anyone and everyone. And if you need a million square feet and you need us to build it for you, we would love to do that too. <laughs> Perfect. Nice. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Thanks.